Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode the story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada you don't take yada yada in life don't take yada yada from your wireless provider metro by t-mobile has no contracts no credit checks no surprises and nada yada yada stop by one of over six thousand metro stores nationwide this episode is brought to you by alienware during dell tech fest score game-changing innovations with limited time deals on select next-gen alienware gaming tech new dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the alienware m18 laptop powered by an intel core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals liquid cooling three-dimensional audio with dolby atmos and impressive overclocking potential your dream setup amazing prices and free shipping await you for a limited time only at alienware deals. That's alienware.com slash deals. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Alexis, codenamed Doc Holiday Jackson. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. What more appropriate way to begin today's episode than to shout out Dead Prez, who should be familiar to any uh, any fan of hip hop, uh, as it was. I don't know about you all, but as I was researching a lot of this, it kept playing in my head. It's bigger than hip hop. And it's true. This this is a prescient group. Uh, this is a group that, for anyone unfamiliar with the genre, is known for activism, known for uh, political stances, known for taking the message beyond the music, right, and into the halls of power and speaking truth to those folks. Today's episode, if we were describing it, as a wine would have a, uh, you know, an autumnal note of Edward Bernays, right? <laughs> uh, a, a, a crisp bite of music industry corruption. Mm? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. Maybe a, a vintage of hip hop. And then some would say uh, an undertone throughout a bouquet of conspiracy. 
that may and, affect yeah. millions of people today. And overall, quite the umami, if I may say so myself. Mm. Yeah, umami of institutionalized racism much? Mm. That's the one I was referring to, Matt. Mm. The insidious umami, mm-hmm. which yeah. was all, also the name of my post-rock vapewave group. Anyway, we don't need to get into that. But, but music, we're talking about hip-hop. We are fans of hip-hop. Uh, we are obviously nerds, I think, to some degree. Uh, and like many people, we define different phases of our lives by the music we encounter at those pivotal moments. And that's something that's common to all human beings. But if you didn't know anything about hip hop, uh, we, we should probably start there as we dive into this, this strange allegation. So here are the facts. Yeah, I mean, the, the genesis of hip hop really is in, uh, it's, it's a uniquely American art form in that it started, in, you know, uh, in Brooklyn, New York, largely uh, in Harlem uh, street parties, kind of or block parties that involved um, DJs taking two records and playing back and forth the breaks, which are like the part in a track that is sort of like the part where there's no singing and you could take like jazz records or, you know, R&B records or what have you, and juggle those back and forth by keeping those breaks going. And then MCs, masters of ceremony, would rap over them. And these would literally be, I mean, there were certainly parties that involved just, you know, um, like boom boxes and and that kind of pre-recorded music. But it's this phenomenon that really started, you know, becoming what we now know as hip hop. You had DJs like Jam Master J and Grandmaster Flash, Funk Master Flex. They were all masters of the art of, of turntabling. And then you would have MCs uh, like Fab Five Freddy or some of the earlier names that you would hear about in the genesis of hip hop rapping on top of those juggled kind of beats. Yeah, I would say one of the biggest misconceptions that we run into when exploring hip hop is if someone is not familiar with it, right, or familiar with the history of it, uh, then it might be mistaken as simply music, which is not the case. Hip-hop is more of a movement, and there's a a large amount of scholarly debate over what the foundational pillars of this movement would be considered, you know. But uh, but in general, these four pillars or elements, we'll call them, can be considered the foundations of this movement. Like you described, Noel, uh, to the most well-known, DJing, MCing or rapping, right? DJing, turntabling, MCing, rapping, uh, graffiti, right? Uh, and then, of course, breakdancing, b-boying. And nowadays, you'll often hear hip-hop used as a synonym for rap music. But it's really best to think of rap as part of hip-hop rather than the thing entire. And and you're right, it did originate in New York City in the South Bronx in the 1970s, an economically uh, depressed period of time in that that area. And again, there's so much excellent scholarship on the complex cultural roots of this movement uh, that I, I would recommend. There's something we'll reference later in this episode, a great new podcast uh, called Louder Than a Riot, uh, which is available on NPR, and I, I highly recommend checking it out. It's got our own Rodney Carmichael on there. Uh, this, this kind of stuff proves that there, there's serious academic thought, forensic research into 
the 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 ecosystem from which this movement sprang uh, and and the way that it synthesizes much much older traditions and things as hip hop began at society's margins its origins are kind of legendary at times mythical or enigmatic but one thing's for sure the bright eggs in the music industry realized there was money to be made. And when they realized there was money to be made, what was seen as an underground or uh, less mainstream thing began to move to the center of public conversation. I do want to walk back really quickly. I, I, I said uh, the earliest days of hip hop were in you know Brooklyn and in uh, Harlem. And you're absolutely right, Ben. It was in the South Bronx where it started, but then it quickly kind of spread throughout the other boroughs of New York. And it, mm-hmm. and it is very much a, a New York City phenomenon. Um, and it's, it's very true, Ben. It very quickly became clear that there was an industry within you know this very grassroots uh, genre and culture, because you're right. It wasn't just the music. It was the graffiti. It was the dancing. It was fashion. It was all of this thing that was just rife for, you know, commodifying. Yeah. I, I think that's an important, just an important thing to think about. I want to pinpoint on the graffiti really quickly because it's a form of marketing in a way. Uh, if you mm-hmm. think about it correctly, you know, mm-hmm. if you could, if you tagged your name and you're a, a well-known, you know, DJ or MC, um, and you were, you know, tagging in certain places, people start to recognize, oh, yeah, this is around an area where there was, um, you know, uh, essentially a concert or a party or, or something going on. You begin to recognize that tag. Um, mm-hmm. And then, Ben, you're just you're talking about some some people within this larger music industry realized how popular this could be if it was funneled through the official channels. And that's that's what this whole episode is about. What happens when when something that has a grassroots uh, that is being risen from the grassroots uh, gets funneled through these channels. Mm -hmm. With a little bit of a vig, some rent seeking along the way. That's right. Shout out to capitalism. uh, The only ideology that'll take a t-shirt that says down with capitalism and figure out a way to sell it to you. Uh, That's at the risk of sounding cynical or nihilistic. That is, that is the case. The music industry today is a very different beast now, mainly because of the advent of the internet, which democratized a lot of things. People had access they did not have before. But in the days before, you could hop online or use your magic pocket computer. Uh, structural forces in the music business wielded profound control over what could or could not be played, what was or was not defined as successful, right? And what you heard if you're just going to concerts, if you're just listening to the radio, if you don't live in New York and the music industry suits are not giving the cosign consigliere style to a given group performing in New York, then you might never hear of them. And of course, this is still to some extent true in the modern day. The industry with all its wiles and woes still does this stuff all the time. We've talked about it. We talked about who actually writes so many of the pop songs you hear. Uh, But in the pre-internet era, corruption was uh, there's a there's a word. uh, Frank Moharan, a friend of the show, taught me a long time ago. Wide rife. Remember Mm -hmm. that one? (laughs) Corruption was wide rife. like predatory deals sent artists directly from the studio to the poorhouse. 
Uh, well, they'd, the, they'd make us stop at a couple concert halls and then be. There we are. <laughs> and that's maybe something we have to do another day. That's a whole episode, but it's true. Uh, really quickly, I just wanted to add, you know, we're talking about the difference between needing a record deal uh, and being able to do it yourself through like SoundCloud and so many of these these infrastructures that are in place now just you wouldn't have had in those in those days. Um, and that's really democratized, you know, the entertainment industry to the point where it's almost like who needs a record label anymore. Um, and if you're interested, there's actually um, a, a little bit of clever modeling that some uh, programmer dreamt up and it's called a record deal simulator and it just lets you kind of run the numbers and make it make you realize very quickly if if you are in fact getting screwed um and n- unless you're dealing with cool indie labels that have a very cool niche kind of foot in the door with, with a t- certain type of genre or a certain type of artists mm-hmm. uh it, it, you really don't need that as much anymore and so many amazing artists like Billie Eilish for example sure she has a record deal because she gets this massive benefit of the distribution that is a record label like Interscope, but she got big because of her SoundCloud and because of like just being an interesting artist in and of herself. Or touring, right. you know, a lot of a lot of the uh, financial bread and butter for many musical acts is is ultimately touring. Anyway, shout out to Algiers and, and the Matador label. They seem they seem pretty totally. cool. Nobody ruined that for me. <laughs> I don't want it to go wrong. You're right, though. You're right. And contracts aside, there's physical and emotional danger in the music industry. You want to be successful, says some creepy uh, suit. What would you do? You know what I mean? So abuse of all types is common and it's covered up because people feel like their careers are on the line. And in some cases, they may be absolutely correct. Payola and nepotism runs rampant. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, guys, what is payola? It's uh, it's Crayola's really, really <laughs> evil cousin. <laughs> <laughs> yep, nailed it. Uh <laughs> Payola is also a term for uh, a, a term for direct pay to play on a radio station, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's weird. It's really yeah, that's that's weird stuff because you could you can pay to get on it, or the radio station can just decide to play your song a lot, and then all of a sudden it becomes their one of their top hits. And that's weird to say coming from you know that you may be listening to this on the radio. That's I'm, true. I hope you are. <laughs> That's true. We actually, it's funny, just for being associated with so many radio stations, uh, we had to take a uh, a mandated thing about ethics in this, in this field. And one of the big things uh, that our corporate overlord said is no payola. It's illegal. Don't do it. Like that was, that was a point. I don't know about you all, uh, but coming from the podcast side, that was that was really weird to me. I was like, I don't, I thank you for thinking I'm important enough for this to ever be an issue. But I, I think you guys got it, you know. Yeah, and I think the simplest way to think about what payola is is just pay for play. It's 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 literally you know grease and palms to get radio play you know, um, gifts and, and the like. And so there are a very codified set of rules in place to prevent even the whiff. Of, of this practice, uh, and that's mandated by the Federal Communications Commission. Yeah, and that happened for a reason. Like, you ever walk into a place of business and you see a weird, uh, like, you see, you see the normal warnings, like no shirt, no shoes, no service, but then you see a really weirdly specific warning where it's like, no drunk ducks. 
And, and you're thinking, okay, well, that something weird happened at this Chevron or whatever. Yeah. Uh, this, yeah. this law exists and it's explicit because it was so prevalent. And there were, there were like literally small groups of people, small number of people who could make someone a success. And this group or this industry – whatever you want to call it. I wouldn't call it a cabal quite yet, but this group cast its collective gaze Sauron-like toward this thing called rap. Fast forward. Today, rap comes in a multitude of genres. So many and so many amazing, amazing things like uh, conscious hip-hop, trip-hop, like, uh, you know, think of like Tricky or uh, similar performers, mumble rap, uh, grime, uh, and and for a time, as these things were evolving successfully and concurrently, uh, one of the most controversial genres was something that was originally known as reality rap and today is often referred to as gangster rap. Yeah, and, you know, the the genre of gangster, you know, sometimes the name of a genre, it certainly doesn't come along with the, like, advent of a genre. It kind of gets named later, usually based around the zeitgeist or, like, the way it's referred to in criticism or in, like, music journalism or whatever. Like, nobody usually coins the name of their genre as they're pushing it out into the world. It's kind of left up to the listeners to decide or, you know, the tastemakers or whatever. But we could trace back the genre that is considered gangster rap, which isn't always a sound. It's not always, there's, there's a lot of things that goes into it, but, uh, six in the morning by ice T, um, which was released in 1986 is typically referred to as the very first gangster rap song. Um, but ice T however, gives credit where credit is due as, as we are uh, huge fans of doing on this very show. Um, but, that is not something that is always uh, a common thing done in the entertainment industry. It's all about kind of flexing and uh, sort of, you know, biting people's styles often, especially in hip hop and uh, just being first to market with something. And and that in and of itself is almost like considered, Oh, well, I was first to do it. Therefore it was my idea, but we know that's not true, but he very uh, clearly gives credit for this tune um, to schoolie D's um, PSK track. Parkside Killers, yeah. Uh, Ice-T also notes that uh, around the same time, Boogie Down Productions on the East Coast came out with uh, the album Criminal Minded. So if you're the average fan at this time, you notice immediately there is something different here. And it's not clearly defined or or limited by a a single difference. You know, that's what I really like about your point, Noel. there's a, there's a sound that's different. Uh, there, the stories told are different. Critics, as they are wont to do, hate this new stuff. Hate it, hate it, hate it. You know what I mean? Uh, they say the main reason they hate it is they feel that it glorifies violence. They feel that it sells a romanticized view of a criminal life to vulnerable children, to vulnerable populations struggling to get by. Uh, this is a relatively conservative view. It's very popular in conservative circles. But I want to point out, this is not an original view. Uh, the U.S. has had a weird love-hate relationship, call it a fatal attraction crush, with what it perceives as gangster since the country was founded. I mean, people loved Al Capone, right? 
Al Capone didn't even make music. <laughs> he was just he was just a scumbag. And and people people like Bonnie mm-hmm. and Clyde, right? They were uh, literally and, mass yeah. murderers. <laughs> I mean, that's right. yeah. Well, people also loved alcohol, even when we were, you know, when it, the view was that it should be prohibited completely. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just it's an interesting love hate relationship that we have with law and order and then, you know, freedom. Right. I think those are the two dichotomies. Like, right. At least that's what it feels like. What's that old line uh, during Prohibition? There was some guy, I can't remember his name. He said, uh, he, he had this choice quote where he said, look, people are going to vote for Prohibition as long as they can still stumble to the polls. And that's that's kind of, I, I mean, that there is a commonality there. There is a... There is a pattern, America. And I love your point about uh, freedom versus law, you know, autonomy versus authoritarianism here, Matt, because one thing that the critics often and in my mind willfully ignored was that gangster rap was is speaking truth to power. Like NWA, I'm sorry, you'll have to edit me here. I don't want to censor the thing. NWA's song, the police. This this ruffled feathers, right? Not just like a moral panic somewhere in America, but the FBI paid attention. The FBI assistant director at the time, a guy named Milt Allerich, wrote a letter in response. And the letter was mainly talking about just how deeply law enforcement resented the song. So they got a strongly worded letter, which is like the most square authoritarian thing to do. But, but at the same yeah. time, it was speaking to a real problem in, in that in that community, right. uh, and it's something that obviously you know hasn't gone away. If 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 uh, the times we're living in now are any indication um, that the LAPD in particular has a history of corruption and has a history of being involved in crime themselves and taking advantage of of people, uh, especially people of color. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but but it is. I mean. It, it's it's a fascinating thing to look at because if you look at the lyrics of something like Six in the Morning, the the Ice T song that we were referencing there, I mean he's talking about getting into a firefight, a, a gun battle with police officers with a SWAT team, um, which you know you can totally see like uh, su- suburban families, maybe um, more conservative thinking people would just think that is the the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. Like you're encouraging other people to think about that and like that's a cool thing or a good thing uh it's talking about jail time it's talking about a lot of other crimes but yeah you're absolutely right like drawing that line then between what the L- what the LAPD is actually doing what NYPD was doing um what police departments across the country were doing at the time it's it just you know it, it does feel like a battle in some ways for the mind about what is yes. right and what is yeah. actually happening Absolutely. And then also point out uh, country music does the same damn thing for a long time. Read those. Read some Outlaws. Johnny. Oh. Yeah. Read Outlaw Country. Read some Johnny Cash lyrics and tell me there's not some gangster shit in there. You know, you know what I mean? It's like we always say one um, one side's terrorist is the other side's freedom fighter. You know, it's easy. It's all about where do you stand as to what the police is to you. And I think that's mm. that's important to have that perspective. And so many of these are all, also play out allegorically where it's not there, there's there's subtext within a lot of these lyrics that that clearly isn't saying, yeah, live this life. It's like, 
you might die if you live this life, but it is a life and it is the life that I live or that we live. So it is speaking truth to power, but I don't, I would argue that it doesn't always glorify it in the way that the square sounding kind of critics uh, might think. I agree with you. Uh, At times, you know, it's, you can't say an entire genre can be described by one thing or one message and one song. But yeah, it's, it's incredibly misleading to say that there, there is always glorification. I'd also like to shout out a really cool, my song freestyle on funk flex that is about this very issue, the image being sold or the betrayal of that image and, and what the origins of that betrayal are and who decides what part of the picture gets framed for public consumption? In any case, you guys are making, we're making real points here. Uh, the battle lines are drawn, right? In some people's minds, we've got these organizations, these individuals who enter a legit moral panic about hip hop, similar to, you know, as you pointed out, Matt, a satanic panic, right? D&D is going to have our children uh, reading the the keys of Solomon or whatever, which they might, but it would be for a campaign and it would probably be pretty fun. Uh, this, this is weird. Is it glorification? Other, other people, proponents of uh, artistry, proponents of activism, actual musicians, producers, fans responded. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course the artist responded by saying, look, I'm depicting the life I experienced. Right. And, I'm successfully doing it. I didn't create the situation in which I was born. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's a deeply uh, offensive kind of censorship to say that I can't tell the truth about my life in the U.S. of all places. So there's a complex argument there, and it's pretty solid. But back to the money, because this is the U.S. In America, there are a couple things that move the needle. The big one is is cash, cold hard cash, the cheddar, the cheese. So gangster rap was selling. It was successful. People wanted to listen to it, right? Uh, and it wasn't just a, a phenomenon where, uh, you know, a lot of people were listening to it from a privileged perspective. They had the luxury of never experiencing or never having to experience the things that are talked about in this music. So for whatever reason, it's successful. It was pushing the industry. And then that means for both critics and proponents, it is pushing the conversation. And and side note, you know, there was a lot of research at the time and ongoing that tried to determine whether there was a causation, right? Whether there was a causative relationship between music and crime, uh, specifically between listening to gangster rap and then later joining a gang. Uh, this was, by the way, a popular view uh, for many uh, folks on the U.S. conservative side. But the problem there is that vastly oversimplifies the numerous socioeconomic factors that were involved, many of which, the majority of which I would say clearly existed way before Schooly D. Right. Ever, ever put out a record in 2011, the World Development Report confirmed that most of the street gang members, as they defined them, that they had spoken with, maintained that they were driven to crime by poverty and unemployment, not by music. None of them even mentioned music once, which I think is is an interesting snapshot to pull for a look at this situation. 
Yeah, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to bring my my wife's expertise into too many of these episodes, but another thing that you know has been shown to increase street level gang members, at least in very young people, is uh, home situations yes. and just what they're dealing with on a daily basis and looking for a a, a place with for family, essentially, um, outside of any of the other glorified stuff that you would hear about. Um, just putting that out there. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point because people seek structure, don't we? We want some form of stability. And in this morass, in this quagmire, as records are continuing to sell, by the way, a larger, stranger question arises. What if what the industry is calling gangster rap isn't an organic success? What if in boardrooms and offices across the landscape of the music industry, a hidden hand moves through the charts, turns the dial of the radio station? What if someone conspired to make gangster rap successful? We'll dive deeper into the track list after a word from our sponsor. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was uh, tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life and you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com. F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment legal or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Here's where it gets crazy. One thing about music, when it when it hits, you feel oh, no pain. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and and white folks, they say it controls your brain. I, I know better than that. That's that's game. Uh and we're ready for that. <laughs> I just I just want to put that out there. Ah, oh, Dead Prez. It's so well written. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, that that's that's a great that's a great example and salient because there is the question, you know, to what degree does the media we encounter affect our decisions? Not for nothing is propaganda tremendously successful. That's an exhibit A of how this stuff, how media can influence your real life actions and perceptions. But there's a weird question here, you know, like when we ask what if the rise of gangster rap was not just an organic trend at first, that seems like a an odd thing to ask, you know, because just imagine the moving parts involved. How could the success of not just a, a single artist, but an entire genre be somehow coordinated across multiple institutions? How could it be somehow manufactured in 2012? someone claimed to uh to know exactly how it happened yeah or at least they gave us a a window into some of the <laughs> details of how they say it happened a alleged window i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to poke at it until we know what it is oh, okay okay fair. yeah okay you're right, sure. you're right short i should sure. claim no, no, I know, no, no, for sure. We're 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 gonna we're gonna have fun with this. We just, you know, on this show, as we always state, uh, sources are very important. Where they come from, backing things up, journalistic approach. We are we are presenting this to you all exactly uh, as we found it and as the world found it back in 2012. So back in 2012, someone created a Gmail account and sent a letter that absolutely. Um, upended the the world of hip hop. The username John Smith, very clever. Um, the address industryconfessions at gmail dot com, and they composed the message using this very, um, I would say, titillating uh, or uh, I don't know, very intriguing at the very least um, subject line. Uh, the secret meeting that changed rap music and destroyed a generation, and this letter which we're going to look at through some excerpts, um, tells a profoundly and disturbing, if true, story. Yeah. So this letter, which you can read in full, uh, was sent and published on hiphopisred.com. R-E-A-D. R-E-A-D, yes, thank you. Uh, the anonymous author says, okay, it's taken me a long time to, I've thought about sending this letter for a long, long time, and I was afraid to, but I want to tell you what happened. 
Uh, well, we can call them John Smith. Why not? Let's let's play their reindeer games. So John says uh, that they were from Europe and they lived in the U.S. in the 90s where they worked as a music executive. Very vague term there, John. Uh, essentially implying that they are one of the elites on the corporate side of the music industry. And they say that in 1991... They were invited to a, a, a very exclusive meeting on the outskirts of Los Angeles. The letter specifically says, quote, I was invited to attend a closed door meeting with a small group of music business insiders to discuss rap music's new direction, which is just a funny phrase. New direction. Anyway, They knew it uh, when they formed the, that group, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Little did I know, the author says, that we would be asked to participate in one of the most unethical and destructive business practices I've ever seen. And so they set the stage because, again, this is an elite insider, right? So you would assume at an exclusive meeting in their area of expertise, they would know everybody, kind of, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a possibility, at least. And it gets a little stranger when it comes to, like, whose house it was and some of the other people that were there. The details are a bit murky. I want to point something out just uh, maybe grammatically within the letter itself. Mm -hmm. So we, we our writer here, at least according to their own story is from Europe or originally from some European country came to the United States, to Los Angeles, became an executive. They wrote this then. Uh, I don't want to spoil it too much, but they wrote this letter later on after leaving. Yes. Uh, so they, they make several grammatical errors, several spelling errors that I, it's not spelling, it's just grammatical errors, but mm -hmm. things that I could see maybe just occurring if you didn't write a whole bunch, but they're pretty simple errors that I think would be caught even in 2012 by Gmail. Um, mm. I'm just interested to know how those came about. Maybe it's something as simple as just a mistype, but saying destructive business practice rather than practices. practices. Um, mm. And there are a couple other places where they do that within the email where it's just incorrect. And it's just, I don't know, it's something to point out, I guess, to think about when we're imagining who this person may be. True. True. Who is this Kaiser Soze? Uh, the, yeah, and it gets it gets us to the area where we might be reading some tea leaves at times, but these are important questions. You could also say something as simple as, well, this is a very emotional confession for them, and they're typing in a hurry, and they're sending before they regret or before they give them, you know, before they start to have doubt. But the truth of the matter is we don't know. Here's what they say about this meeting, again, this alleged meeting. They say, I remember seeing about 25 to 30 people being there, most of them familiar faces. Speaking to those I knew, we joked about the theme of the meeting, as many of us did not care for rap music and failed to see the purpose of being invited to a private gathering to discuss its future. It's very, it's interesting. Among the attendees was a small group of unfamiliar faces who stayed to themselves and made no attempt to socialize beyond their circle. Based on their behavior and formal appearances, they didn't seem to be part of our industry. Oh, tantalizing, vague, insidious umami. Mm, indeed. 
and the group in question was given a uh, a very strongly worded non-disclosure agreement um, that they were forced to sign uh, before the meeting would commence. And some refused and got a little freaked out, and they were like, nah, I'm, I'm good, and they took off. And that's when the meeting commenced. <laughs> uh, and again, there's a... There's a person that the writer knew who uh, welcomed everyone. It was like their, they were running the meeting at least. It seemed to be their house, at least according to the person who's writing this. It's like, thanks everybody. And here's one of these men that you don't know. And he's going to speak to us for a little while. Ta-da. Mm-hmm. Polite claps mm-hmm. all around. All right. And so this speaker, we'll paraphrase some of this, but this this speaker is one of those unfamiliar folks, goes on to say some wildly surreal stuff to this audience. Basically says, look, you all are here because the companies that you represent have invested in an exciting new business opportunity, a, a profitable industry that could be a gold mine. It could be immensely rewarding As long as you all help us out. See, the companies that you all work for, says this person, even if you don't know it yet, they've invested millions of dollars into building what we call private prisons. And because of your position as the tastemakers of the music industry, you could have a big effect on the profit of these investments. Imagine, like, we've been just over the years... The four of us, codename Doc Holiday, Matt, Nola, myself, we've all been in some really weird meetings. One time, Matt and I had to smuggle an Elvis impersonator into a into a How corporate office. How have I not office. heard this story? Wait, we did really? No, yeah, yeah, really. Wait, were you not there with Roxanne? Oh no, we did. Whoa, that's weird. <laughs> Yep, memory just so came many back of to these me. Weird meetings, and that one just, just blew right past you. Whoa. So, okay. so you know, you're active in 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 uh, an industry or career. You're gonna have some weird meetings, but this is pretty Twilight Zone, even for these folks. And uh, we have our author's reaction to some of this news. Yeah, I mean, at, at this time in general, the concept of a private prison wasn't uh, as much in the in the news um, as it as it has been uh, for many years. At this point, um, didn't have the rep that it has now, so the author didn't even know what that was. Um, and he wasn't the only one. He says, uh, "Quote: Sure enough, someone asked what these prisons were and what any of this had to do with us." We were told that these prisons were built by privately owned companies who received funding from the government based on the number of inmates. Um, The more inmates, the more money the government would pay these prisons. It was also made clear to us that since these prisons are privately owned, as they become publicly traded, we'd be able to buy shares. Dude, it's really weird, right? Yeah, and and it's, it's also a cheap way to incentivize people. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about psychological warfare here on mm. like in the highest levels, if this is true. If this is true. And insider trading, probably as well. Uh, so the guy that, uh, from that point, the guy who you mentioned, Matt, who may or may not be the owner of the house, but is definitely in the music industry, he takes to the floor for questions. And he says, look, since our bosses are silent investors 
in this promising new prison business, it is now in their interest, in your boss's interest, to make sure these prisons stay filled. And your job, the way you guys help the team here, is to market music that promotes criminal behavior. And rap, says this guy, is our music of choice. And then the author says he assured us that this would be a great situation for us because rap music is already becoming increasingly profitable for companies and, you know, you'll be able to buy personal stocks in the prison. So they're not like directly paying these people. They're saying tilt the scale with all the levers at your, you know, at your command. And then you can, in addition to helping us, you can buy in to our really messed up plan and then silence filled the room for one long moment before someone shouted, Is this a f***ing joke? <laughs> okay, but the question that, that I'm that, that comes to mind, and, and I know we'll get more into this, is the implication that, like, we're gonna fill up prisons more by popularizing the gangster lifestyle and, like, making young people aspire to that and therefore end up in prison? Is that the implication here, or am I, am I overstating the case, or am I missing something? Let's take a, a quick break here to talk about history and, and bring back some stuff, if it's okay, from our private prisons episode mm-hmm. and videos and content we've made on that before. So if you really want to start talking about this stuff, you got to go back to Reagan in the 1980s and the war on drugs and the effect that those policies had on prison populations. Because... Now, uh, because of those laws, there are a lot more people getting sent to prison for smaller charges, for like small, a lot of smaller well, drug charges. mandatory minimums, and, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and being, three strike rules, yeah. And being sentenced for longer periods of time, which means the, you know, federal, state, and local prisons and jails are being filled up faster and faster, which then spawns this concept and you're really talking about 1983 and onwards, I think. that's Yeah, 1983 is when Corrections Corporation of America, CCA, that we've talked about, yep. is formed. Mm-hmm. So that is a real thing that is, you know, I guess an industry that is taking off, you know, what, seven years prior, eight years prior to this meeting mm-hmm. uh, that allegedly takes place. And, you know, it. we do know for sure that that, that system, that industry works by filling their prisons, by the number of beds that are filled. I just, I guess I just want to pause here for a second to say, yeah, the incentive, it, it, there is real incentive there to make sure those private prisons are filled up. And if you can do anything to move a ne- the needle to get more people into those prisons, then it would be profitable <laughs> for, for people who invested in it. Yeah. In the, in the research for that one, one thing that heartbreaking really was to look at video clips you can see from trade shows where company private prison corporations are you know they got the little like science fair displays set up and they're talking the numbers and how how profitable this is and networking and they yeah their success is defined by the expansion of the mass incarceration system in the US and when this um became luckily a matter of larger debate in the US mainstream can't remember when it happened maybe a little after our episode episodes of that, but whenever it happened, uh, they were radio silent for a little while. They took the hit on their stocks and then 
there were these huge cries, uh, panics even, dare I say a moral panic, over uh, illegal immigration. And what did those private prison companies do with their infrastructure? They just moved it to, you know, they stopped calling them prisons and started calling them detainment centers. I think I may have mentioned this in a past episode, but um, in a previous life when I was a, a reporter for Georgia Public Radio, um, I covered when the housing collapse happened and it put a lot of like small towns that were based around manufacturing, basically just completely, you know, leveled their uh, employment. There was just nothing. And there was this one little town in Georgia that I covered um, who their entire business was based around like textile manu- or It wasn't textiles. It was like building materials and, you know, fabric for furniture and things like that. Um, but all of their plants closed and it was like they had the highest unemployment rate like in the entire state. And CCA uh, was going to bring a prison there. Maybe, maybe. And I covered this event where the CCA people literally had a gym, you know, packed with like all the townspeople, like you would think, and just talking about how great this cease, this prison facility was going to be, how it was going to bring jobs to the community, how it was going to be their ticket out of the poorhouse, And then they ultimately ended up taking it somewhere else. And I guarantee they had that same meeting and a bunch of other, distressed small towns and they got a better deal on infrastructure or whatever. And they just pissed right off. Sure, But I mean, it was, that was the heartbreaking part of the story. And, and also I think the heartbreaking part of this larger story is that these companies are callous on all ends of these calculations. Yeah. I, I mean, if you, if you're looking for a comparison or an analog in the world of fiction, then I would recommend checking out the monorail episode of the Simpsons. Those speeches are made. Those folks are trying to get in front of NIMBY, right? They're trying to find places that are desperate enough such that NIMBY, uh, meaning not in my backyard, no longer applies. And it works because these things get built. Uh, Back to this story. So this is the context, the larger context in which this conversation is happening. That was a quote. The guy who says, is this a joke? The two uh, two other folks from that unfamiliar group, whoever they are, they they're not playing. They seize this dude, you know, with that weird like elbow grab kind of thing that you see that where you see people getting pushed out of nice clubs or fancy restaurants or like someone who objected at the wedding. Uh, this this person's getting they're trying to get this guy out of the house, and then our anonymous author. And a couple of other a couple other dudes try to intervene. They're like, what are, you, "What are you doing? Stop! Hang on!" And that's when one of the one of the guys, one of the goons, pulls a gun. And then all four people are like, "Okay, whoa, no! It's, this is this is the weirdest meeting." And they get the boot, and they're pushed outside. And the industry guy, who may have been the homeowner, who set all this up, he follows them outside, and the conversation changes. And then very explicitly, this guy says, "You know, just want to remind you." I want to warn you that you have signed an agreement and there will be consequences if you talk about this in public. There will be consequences if you talk about it to each other or to anybody else who stayed in that room. And then months passed and our anonymous author, John Smith, feels that he saw a sea change in the industry overall. I'm just going to read part of this verbatim. Um the person who wrote this letter says that he was he or she was never a fan of gangster rap 
or rap in general, but even I could tell the difference between like the way he's, this person says rap was and how it changed around that time. This person says rap acts that talked about politics or harmless fun were quickly fading away as this quote gangster rap started dominating the airwaves and only a few months had passed since the meeting but he suspects that the ideas presented that day had been successfully implemented. It was as if the order had been given to all major label executives. The music was climbing the charts and most companies uh, were more than happy to capitalize on it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't have exact statistics and sales numbers to compare to here because honestly we don't even know exactly how much money was made within the music industry and all the various uh, streams of revenue that the music industry had for a lot of the acts that were coming out around that time but there was certainly a lot of money being made around the time that this uh, author is speaking about yeah and this haunts them at least according to their claim they say that they start checking out of the industry. They don't want to go to the uh, to the posh parties. They don't want to network. And then so much of that stuff is networking. And I think networking is uh, terrible for meritocracies. I'm just going to say it. But the uh, the anyway, they they eventually call it quits officially. 1993, they leave the music business and they return to Europe for a few years. And in the 90s, late 1990s, through the internet, this author says they learned about the prison industrial complex for the first time, learned about the whole, you know, leviathan of the thing and all the places its tentacles reach. And in their mind, the story of this Twilight Zone meeting, this X-Files meeting, because it has men in black, right? Uh, This X-Files meeting began to make a horrifying sort of sense. Was it true, though? And more importantly, uh, what does the conversation about the veracity of this letter tell us about music uh, discrimination and crime today? We'll answer that question after a word from our sponsor. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then 
you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was uh, tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life. And you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com. F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is an investment legal or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Okay. All right. It was, it was a little tough to hold on to this. I think we, I think we were fair to the author of the letter, right? And I think we gave some good context, but if we're asking whether this letter is true or whether it's bunk, or whether it's something in between, we have to we have to be honest. We have to acknowledge a couple of uh, holes in this story. So people have been scrutinizing this for almost a decade now. It should be like for any <clears throat> this letter touches on so many things in U.S. culture, right? And for anyone familiar with any one of those things, you may have heard of this letter uh, right now. The first thing to get out of the way is we are not at the end of this particular iteration of the usual suspects. We have not identified the author. We don't know who this Kaiser Soze is. Uh, and because we haven't identified this person, we also haven't identified the veracity or the truth of their claims. We just have a letter that seems very explicit in what it's recounting. But there, there hasn't been another person who's come forward in the years since who provably said, I was at that meeting. It's still just an email from 2012. Oh, the other thing to keep in mind here when we're talking about attempting to prove this, we have to remember that the United States government and private industry within the United States and internationally, uh, these are very powerful things and they have functioned in the past as essentially a hand that's way over here and is pulling strings and making things... Sorry, it's not working in audio. Um, the, the government working with private corporations and industries has functioned as a hidden hand in the past. We've talked about this before. Check out our episode on the FBI and U.S. counterculture. Uh, there's a serious rabbit hole to jump into there about the bizarre aesthetic rules of Soviet-era propaganda talked about this we've talked i mean there's so many things i mean just bernays alone the first episode we ever did like 
it's industry, but it's also government and what's good for society. And what does that mean? What does it mean when, (laughs) when the government and private industry is deciding what, uh, the best, the best humans do in their homes when they're alone with each other? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the, the goose for the gander thing, right? Uh, what, what gander are we talking about? And has anyone asked the actual goose? I mean, uh, I haven't seen him in a while. The you know the uh, the de- the overthrow of democratically elected governments throughout Latin America. The reason Hawaii is a state; these things happen because of this sort of hand in hand evil stuff. Like it's not the even if this story is not true. It, it's a uh, it's something that could be considered plausible based on the patterns of the past. Third, and this is a this is something I have to I have to poke a hole in here. So third, while this story is amazing and terrifying, if it's true, it has a really dangerous implication and something that we have to acknowledge is blaming a genre of music for real life actions. Is it an intellectually honest feat? You know, Dungeons and Dragons is accused of turning nerds across the country into devil worshippers. Clearly not true. Clearly not. We, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. I mean, the heavy metal music that was the subject of so many satanic panics is not even really that heavy. It's like you Iron Maiden I mean? or something. It's like, <laughs> right, right. And, and we see also this pattern. It iterates into the past. Uh, new genres of music have been the cause of moral panics for a long, long time. There was probably someone at some point who was like, Gregorian chant is going to ruin the world. You know what I mean? And the world in its own weird, unsteady, imbalanced way kept spinning. So this phenomenon dates back into antiquity. And it's, it, it's I think it's a dangerous um and I don't mean to be extremist about this, but I, but I think it's somewhat insulting uh, to the intelligence of a given audience to say that they can be completely programmed. But again, you know, you brought up this point of normalization off air, Matt, that I thought was brilliant. And we know propaganda works. So maybe the truth is somewhere in between. Well, I think, it, yeah, that was off air, wasn't it? We didn't actually talk about this. Uh, I do I do want to bring this up. And I know. I know many of you will disagree with me, but I do feel like there is truth to growing up as a, you know, the mind of a child growing up in a world where the music that's being, that you end up exposed to as, as your, your developing brain is going through some of these early processes. um, The language that you hear on a frequent basis will, I think, contribute to the way your mind forms thoughts and what you what you do, like think about social media. If you, if anyone's seen the social dilemma, um, you there's essentially Gen, Gen Z. I think are the people who grew up with cell phones in middle school, and mm-hmm. how that how that has inextricably changed the way Gen Z. Not every person who would be considered Gen Z, but as a whole, if you look at it statistically, changes their behaviors and their thoughts and the way they act. And I think any kind of exposure like like to anything for a long enough period of time at a young enough age can have an effect, mm-hmm. not on, you know, the adults who are listening to music and, you know, thinking about what's happening and understanding all the context, but a child that is maybe thinking about it in a little more of a uh, 
fantastical or a fa- fantasy like dreamlike way aspirational perhaps yeah possibly oh, just I, wanted I, to put that I, out I would there. argue too yeah. that I mean a lot of the hip hop that's really popular now um, like trap music um, it, it's sort of like all of the uh, glamorization of, of that stuff without any of the thoughtful commentary <laughs> you know what I mean like not all of it and I, I'm a big fan of like gimmicky kind of trap music and it's, it's definitely catchy and, and there's you know it's all about like these catchphrases and stuff and, and I'm not saying that it's all like garbage but a lot of it is a bit more frivolous and not particularly intelligently constructed lyrically speaking whereas the gangster rap stuff that we're talking about at least it has kind of a message whereas a lot of the rap nowadays i sound like a grandpapa but like it's sort of junk food you know i i I hear you on that my question then would be are we hearing like what why is that a phenomenon people feel they perceive like um what's the old what's the old uh jay-z line i used to rap like common sense till i made my first mill i haven't rapped like common sense like there's there's a a financial perspective there you know and and i want to be very clear i don't think any of us are saying that any musician is somehow unintelligent maybe they're just playing to the crowd or maybe maybe they have like uh maybe they have an entire catalog of more you know perhaps more overtly political or ideological stuff and they're just not allowed to put it out. Yeah, it's like the idea that like Picasso just like, you know, oh, anyone could do what Picasso does. Look, it's all just like finger painting. But he was like a classically trained artist that just happened to funnel his efforts into this particular genre. And he, you know, um, but I, you know, I'm literally talking about stuff like Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. You know I mean? It's, it's very meant to be catchy and get stuck in your head and be these earworms, but there's not a lot of substance to, to that kind of stuff. Hey, watch out, man. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I got excited right? on that one. <laughs> yeah, dang. No. No. Hoping, hoping no. you had a secret life um, as a, as a, uh, <laughs> as a trap <laughs> ghostwriter. I, uh, I have a couple secret lives, but I see, what, I see what you're saying. I guess in the end, it's in the end, look, did I listen to all Christian music as a young mind because I was Christian and looking for something to listen to? Or did a lot of that music influence me and how I was thinking, what I was deciding to do. I want to say that I was listening to that because I identified as a Christian and I wanted to listen to music with that content. Um, And it's a fascinating argument that is, you know, been had for a long time about popular consumption of, of varying media and its effect or our, you know, our effect on that media itself. It's a chicken and egg kind of argument, right? Where it's like, did Yeah. The school shooter shoot up the school because he listened to Marilyn Manson, or was he going to do it anyway? And this is just a thing that he sought out because he, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, we, I don't think we've ever successfully been able to like hang actions on like exclusively on violent video games, like violent video games turned someone into a sociopath or a psychopath. I don't know that anyone's ever successfully proven that argument. And I think this is, is very similar. Well, to, I, I mean, in that regard, first I would say that this way we spent some time exploring these larger patterns, right? These larger social consumption patterns. There's a good argument to be made that if someone, to take your earlier example, uh, did participate in a mass shooting or they shot up a school, 
And even they claim that uh, the music they were listening to was the impetus for that decision. Then that's just one impetus. That's one of the dominoes. There's a very good argument that uh, if it wasn't, you know, insert album here, it would have been something else that prompted a violent break. It's just, it's like, it's so self-satisfying and to a degree masturbatory, honestly, for people to say this simple answer explains the thing and makes my opinion right. And despite feeling satisfying, the simple answer is not always the correct one, right? And that's when that speaking of that point of simplicity, so one thing we have to say, just observing this scheme as it's structured in this letter, isn't it? Isn't it a little complicated? It's got a lot of intervening variables, got a lot of actors. Uh, It seems like there are other ways to increase incarceration, like increasingly draconian laws for only certain types of crime. Look at the look at the consequences for possession of crack cocaine versus possession of cocaine. And, you know, say that and try your best to somehow explain the difference without talking about systemic racism. You know what I mean? Like, I want to hear it if you got one. Uh, That kind of stuff seems to have a more immediate and a more predictable impact on the U.S. addiction to mass incarceration, much more so of a measurable impact than a three to four minute song with some insightful, if violent rhyme schemes and a kick ass hook. Like, it seems like we're it seems like a lot of work to do. But that's that's, again, just it's based on this letter. It's based on this one letter, and we know that factions of government agencies, if like by what I mean is like it's not always as if the entire CIA decides to do something. It's like four or five people in the CIA conspire with some buddies to do something as the CIA, maybe not with approval. But it's true that these entities have tilted the scale of public opinion in the past. The shadow of Bernays stretches into the modern day. And what's so fascinating, and another reason that I recommend Louder Than a Riot, is that the host, Sidney Madden and Rodney Carmichael, explore all the all the things this conversation about this letter brings up. You know, they interview different uh, – they interview different luminaries in the world of hip-hop and say, well, what do you think about this? Do you think it's legit? Do you believe this letter? And some people – it's it's fascinating because there are people who are saying, you know, I just – looking around and growing up, I just figured this is – something like this is very plausible. And there are people who are saying, well, it's a conspiracy theory, but it leads to important questions in the modern day. Um we should also say, yeah, at this point, not only did is there no one from that alleged meeting who has come forward to confirm it, there's no government official on record who's saying like, oh, yeah, 1991. Yeah, that was our bad. And there's no it, it, time. It, it, it doesn't even require this like <laughs> shadowy meeting to have taken place with the actual executives of private prisons. Like the laws that led to so much more mass incarceration by people of color were in and of themselves racist. Like the idea of, you know, putting this burden on the black community by having these mandatory minimums for marijuana possession, you know, for uh, cocaine and crack possession or what, what have you. And then, you know, Dave Chappelle jokes, but I don't think he's entirely joking that he thinks the CIA 
created crack to destroy the black community. And and that's a, we did yeah, an episode about exactly. that too. But that's what I'm saying. That's also, <laughs> you know, just as plausible, but I don't think to, to your point, Ben, it requires this level of secrecy or, or shadowiness. It's just kind of like, of course, this is what's happening, you know, and who's more likely to benefit from this record label executives or like people in government, you know, who, who are, who are, who are in mm, business mm. with these private prisons. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent question. I, and I know, I think there's one thing we want to, I know we're running a little long, but I think there's one thing we, we should address. Uh, it's this, we are looking, we're trying to look at this as objectively as possible based on the letter, right? The question about the letter, but there is a much deeper exploration. We're on, we're on the outside of this. You know what I mean? Very much so. And with that in mind, that's why that's why I'm recommending uh, this show, Louder Than a Riot. And I, I'd like to directly quote uh, Rodney Carmichael here, uh, which you, you can read the transcript on NPR. He says he says something that I think is I think is profound. And he says, quote, the hype around this letter, fake news or not, it really tells us that the fear and the paranoia around how the criminal justice system dis proportionately impacts black people in this country is very real. And I, you know, I, I want to give space to that observation. I hope it stays with people because if everything was hunky dory, then a letter like this would have just been another piece of spam. No, it? it's, it's, it's uh, pointing to a, uh, a symptom of a much larger problem. And with that, you know, we can't we can't prove the validity or legitimacy of this letter. But we want to hear from you whether or not this letter is real. Do you think something like this happened? Do you think there has been conspiracy to you to uh, artificially inflate the success of music of certain types of music uh, to create some kind of widespread social impact? We're specifically talking about this alleged plan to push people into the prison system. Uh, but it could be it could be any number of things. You know, if this kind of mechanism works, uh, you know, it just becomes a matter of figuring out your end goal, doesn't it? If you're that insidious and you've thrown ethics away long ago. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you think it's likely? And if so, how would it work? And also, I feel like it's it's it contains some stuff we have to unpack about I don't know. It's kind of unfair to the actual artists and musicians working in this genre too. You know what I mean? It's like saying that success that you literally spent years attaining is not your own. It kind of removes agency from those people too. I don't know. It's a lot. And we want to hear your opinion about it. For sure. We want to hear your opinion about uh, the low end theory. By a tribe called Quest, because that came out in 1991, I think, or maybe 92. I'm not sure. But um, that was certainly not gangster rap. Like, what? we just want to know your opinion about oh, that's all, my everything favorite genre today. of rap, by what, the way. Uh, I like a lot of rap, but I mean, I love that 90s kind of, they called it woke rap, I guess. Like, um, before that was a term that got thrown around all the time. Like, tribe and uh, arrested development and just a lot of those kind of posit- positivity rap, you know, but then also huge, like, Wu-Tang Clan fan. Tell us your favorite artists and why and what you think about this entire 
episode. Uh, you can find us on social media where we are Conspiracy Stuff on Twitter and Facebook. You can find us on Instagram, Conspiracy Stuff Show. If you don't want to do that stuff, we have a phone number you can call. That's right. Uh, you can hit us up at one eight three three S T D W Y T K. Fellow writers, fellow freestylers, if you if you have some insightful response, uh, you could you could put it there. Just keep it less than three minutes. Um, I also want to hear people's just favorite isolated lines or thoughts from a from a hip hop uh, lyricist perspective, uh, and. The only thing you have to do when you call that line, just let us know if we can use your voice or your name on air. But what if you hate social media? What if you're like, ugh, I, this is too much, you know? Life is already tough. Why are you guys throwing these plot twists and all this hoopla at me? I don't have time to log into Instagram. I'm old school. I use email. Well, do we have news for you? You can always reach us at our good old-fashioned email address where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you.